This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, farmers who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and farmers who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Alongside me, Matt Hour. Today we're chatting with Morgan Dahl. Morgan is a hard-working fifth-generation farmer from Miriamvale in central Queensland. From running an import business to working as a qualified electrical technician, Morgan knows how to hustle and put a plan into action. Morgan's first property was a 600-acre tree farm, requiring refurbishment to remove 400 acres of failed tree plantation. The property now successfully runs beef cattle. He has an impressive story, one which will certainly relate to many young farmers across Australia. You may notice that Matt is joined by a familiar voice from a previous episode. Sam Marwood from Cultivate Farms stepped in as our expert guest host for this episode. Let's jump in. Good afternoon, firstly, Morgan, and thank you for making some time to join us on Beyond the Farm Gate. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me. And on the show today, I've also got Sam Marwood joining me as guest host. How are you going, Sam? G'day, Matt. A pleasure to be here on Beyond the Farm Gate. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. I thought I'd start with learning a bit more about your connection to agriculture and how it all began. Oh, pretty basic. I was born on the farm. I was fifth generation, about four years old is when I was out mustering on a horse. And I was that small, they had to lead me around on my horse until one day I fell asleep and the horse stepped over a log and I fell off. <laughs> and then that was it. There was no more leading. My granddad told me, get on and you got to learn how to ride on your own now. So that, that was pretty well it. So I got pushed into it from there. And then even stuff like you'd come home from school. As soon as I'd get home from school when we had wieners, I'd run home and throw me jeans on and race down the yards and my horse was there saddled. So I'd jump on it and roar out to the road where the wieners were and walk them out and walk them in with me granddad. So just growing up on it and grew up loving it. And what I tell me other, other granddad when he says how busy I am, I says, what I was born, bred and corn fed to do. <laughs> and what part of the world is the farm located in? We're located in central Queensland or Miriamvale is a small little town, so in central Queensland in between Gladstone and Bundaberg. And then that's where the family farm, which is my father's side and obviously my father's father's side was there. And then my mother's side has a farm down near Toowoomba. He's a bit of cropping and a bit of sheep and a bit of cattle there too. So, But the main base farm where we are is there in Miriamvale, central Queensland. And what about stock numbers and, and land size? What, how big's the farm? The grandparents down there, Toowoomba, I think he's about he's about three and a half thousand acres. Then the family farm here is ten thousand acres at the moment. And then obviously myself at the moment, I'm sitting around two thousand two hundred, just over two thousand if my math isn't letting me down. Because over the years, and it's sort of the way agriculture is, money being tight and labour being expensive, we've always had to streamline how we operate things. So. The family farm and my farm are completely run now by myself and my father. We, we do everything, cover everything, which is obviously a big undertaking. Like that one paddock I bought, I remember back when I was a kid and we are mustering it, we used to muster it with eight blokes and now we're down doing it with two. So it's just we had to streamline everything and down to the fact where we 
brand all our calves and do everything ourselves. So I've automated all the cattle yards, like the main set of yards we rebuilt. I've put pneumatic rams on all the gates leading up to the crush and everything so I don't have to run back and forwards and wireless remotes and all that sort of stuff. Morgan, I think your drive for farming and to own your farm is an inspiration and it's a topic dear to my heart. And what did it take for you to buy your first farm? We talk a lot about mental barriers. Is that one of the things you have to first get over that, you know, it is possible and then it's just a matter of going for it and being persistent? What's the secret sauce? I was always and still am, I'm very money hungry or very business driven. I love my business and I love looking for where there's a window and the way that sort of worked is I knew the family farm and obviously my father and that were very upfront with it talking. The farm, it needed labour and it needed help, but it wasn't financially viable to to fund me. So I, I never had the opportunity where I could have just slacked off at school and left school at grade 10 and just go work on the farm. That opportunity was never on the table and to the point where my granddad used to say, if you don't like this, you better study hard because otherwise you've got a lot more ahead of it than behind you. So I went from that and, yeah, used to, as a young kid, would um, recycle cans from local football games and collect old newspapers and I'd sell them to an insulation company and sell horse manure and used to mow my grandparents' lawn, sell macadamia nuts, and I used to get paid a little bit for mustering for another family or whatever. I used to get nothing. I used to get... every six months or something when I was mustering for them. But so I just, yeah, committed to it. And then I knew if I wanted to get into farming and I wanted to make something for myself, I had to find an off-farm income, which I believe is a secret to anyone who's young and wants to go out and try and make it for themselves because it's a huge undertaking when you look at the statistics and even the deposits for finance and stuff to buy a farm. You you need that off-farm income. So I went about mid-year 12, we're having a family barbecue and I said to my uncle, didn't know how to work hard and I knew he made big money. So I asked him, what job did, what did you do? How did you get your job? And he said, well, I did a um, E&I apprenticeship, which is electrical and instrumentation and control technician apprenticeship with a industry mob here. And then that was it. So I set my sights on that and I was lucky enough. I got one of the three apprenticeships offered by a large refinery in the area out of 350 applicants straight out of school. I literally went and worked as a TA, a trades assistant, doing other shutdowns pretty well as soon as I finished school to the day before I started my apprenticeship. I think we, we do seven days a week and you're allowed to do 20, 22 days straight or something to the, make you have a day off. And then went and got my job, just started my apprenticeship and then the whole time still obviously working on the farm. Every weekend you had off from work. There was a lot of tree farms at the time and the tree farms ended up, it was going to be a, I don't know, a carbon offset or something they were trying to manage and they ended up going broke. So they come up for sale and I think it was, I was 17 in the first year of my apprenticeship and they come up for sale and I put in an offer and the offer obviously I put in, I think it was about $50,000 underneath what the agent said it was valued at. It was originally my great-grandfather's family farm so it was my grandmother's family farm that her brother inherited and then he sold to the tree farms or 600 acres so the majority portion of that so obviously I had a bit of sentimental value in wanting it as well and the fact that it adjoined the um, current family farm as well convenience as well 
So, yeah, I think I negotiated with them for two years, it would have been. It got up to, I'd leave it a few months and then I'd send him an email and offer him $10,000 more. And to the point where the um, agent even said to me, he said, your offer's that low and it's that far under what the board wants. I'm not even going to put it to them. And I sort of said, well, said a few angry words under me breath and because I think he sort of must have just treated me a bit like a joke, I'm guessing. It would have been a week or a fortnight after that. It came out in the newspaper that all of their tree blocks around were up for sale, put in an offer, and I, being half smug, said, I made an email and said that offer you said was too low. I want you to put it in. And he sent back, yeah, no worries, I'll do that if you want, which at the time that was, it was, I think it was $70,000 under what they thought they should get. And lo and behold, I was the highest offer. So then I, I got it. So I got bought 600 acres there because there was two agents assigned to that property group. And the one that was rude to me, he wasn't even game to ring up and tell me that I was successful. The other bloke that I hadn't even been dealing with was the one that rang up and told me. Yeah, I love this, Morgan. There's something around, you know, you're selling nuts as a school kid to finding opportunities to bring in money, to build that wealth, to go and jump on these opportunities. But you could have a bit of money in the bank and not be looking for a farm like that. Was that farm one of many that you'd been looking at and you, you'd asked for? Or is this the only one you looked at and you got it? Like, what's, have you got this continual mind instead of looking? Always, always looking, always looking. And then, um, Previous to this, I tried to purchase a 600-acre block off my father. He was willing to sell, obviously. It was market value, but it was a fair price. And the way we were going to try and work that is there at the time there was some government incentive that was meant to help people buy their first farm. And I applied for that, and it, it didn't work out to the point where I think they offered it was like a $600,000 loan that give you that you had to pay off in 10 years and you had to buy a farm immediately that was big enough that you could be full-time. And old mate pretty well said over the phone that the fact that I had an off-farm income meant I, I wasn't eligible for this grant. So that sort of wrecked that idea. So we just went back and kept on working and kept on saving. And this one come up and obviously with a bit of sentimental value and a bit of convenience being so close, but to the actual point where because my father was telling me when old mate was saying the offer was too low, he said, do you think you should ring up and put another 30 grand on it? And I said, no, I've dug my heels in now. I said, this is this is what I'll pay for it. And if, if it doesn't come through, it's not meant to be. I said, but I don't need to put any infrastructure on it because I can use the yards on the family farm. So I said, if anyone wants to pay more than what I'm willing to pay, then I think they got rocks in their head. So that was sort of it. I sort of took me stand and obviously – if that hadn't come off, I would have just kept on looking. There's something powerful about not putting the no in someone else's mouth. Knew what you wanted, knew what the worth was and, and put it out there. So what, what gave you that confidence that you could pay it off? Uh, obviously, you've been doing the planning. You had the money, some money in the bank. Uh, how did you convince the bank uh, that you were good for it as well? I was lucky enough at the time. The father just put me straight in contact with his bank manager, who's now still to this day my bank manager, and he's a wonderful bank manager to the point when, like the last block or whatever, he, he rang me and said, I've got these contracts. What time? Because work in town's an hour away from the farm. He said, what time would you get to the farm after you finish work? And I said, oh, about, oh, about six. And he said, yeah, no worries, because he's an hour in the opposite direction from the farm. And he said, no worries, mate, I'll get the contracts and I'll um, jump in the car. I'll see you at the farm at six. 
So he comes there on in dark and we're signing paperwork. And I guess that made it a lot easier to do as well. But from a financial standpoint, I've always been good with managing money, always been good at budgeting. But I was fortunate enough that obviously all the work I'd done in the past and oh, coming with that, there's a there's a lot of sacrifices as in I wasn't out every weekend on the terps with me mates and throwing money against the wall or I'd be working, which on the family farm, obviously you're not making money, but you're definitely not spending it either. So I had a pretty good deposit. Agricultural land, you need 30 to 40% as soon as it's over 100 acres. What do you reckon you would be doing if that property didn't pop up? You know, how, would you just be the same method? You've, you've got your vision in mind, you want to own a farm. 100%. Like I look back at it now and there was another tree farm that went up for sale at that exact same time and our neighbours, because it joined onto us or was close vicinity to us now, bought it. They're a wonderful young couple come from the Territory and they've just been on landline and did a beef week tour and everything. And I sort of look and wish I had been, whether I had been a bit more developed and I could have had a had a bigger shot at it and gone bigger sooner. But I guess you no point talking about what could have been. And the same as if I had missed out on that, there would have been no point talking about what it could have been. You would have been just onto the next one. I gain that you, you're never going to win every one. And if you get overly committed to something trying to win, you're probably n- not necessarily going to win because as, as the years are going on, obviously that that drive for business or to find a gap in the market, I've always continued on. So I've played a bit of the share market as well and I've got my own business where I started importing and reselling items because way I looked at that was the middleman was always the one making the most money for the least amount of work. So I've done that on the side. And probably the best learnings I did from that is I, I looked at the market and I saw there was a craze going on at the moment was people wanting to buy cheap, well, affordable imported front end loaders. So they're, most of them, 90% of them are manufactured in China. So I got on there and did about six months worth of work and 20 million emails and I actually got a 13-ton front-end loader manufactured and imported it 100% myself. So I bought that in with the vision thinking, yeah, I'm going to get these built and resell them. I had $40,000, dollars in it by the time it landed and it sat in the shed for a bit because then the other thought whether I'd be able to use it to stick rake the tree farm that I bought, that original block, because at this point it'd been, I'd had um, dozers come through and pulled all the trees so all the tree farm trees were laying down because they were all failed they're a tasmanian hybrid tree that they planted and then native borer grubs here just loved them because they must have just been soft and just killed them all so they were never any never going to be any good that forty-five thousand dollar later sat in a shed for 12 months went to do about three hours stick raking in it and i wasn't happy with the finish it was doing for me so i went and parked it back in the shed and as for a rash decision or an uneducated decision that's mine because every day for a year when you walk past the shed and here you got $45,000 sitting there and you think what you'd be better off using that money for is my mentality now for whenever a decision comes up that's shaped how I make it because I want to make sure I don't make another mistake like that. I did. I ended up selling it at the end of that 12-month period. I sold it and sold it for what I paid for it which is more fortunate than a lot of people get when they make mistakes like that but it definitely didn't lessen any of the learnings from it. I can guarantee that. I think that's a, 
a fantastic story on an entrepreneurial mindset, Morgan. And I'm I'm curious about why do you believe that you've been a successful entrepreneur? Because I think you have. You've you've obviously demonstrated that with your stories about but working up to a, a property and and then having a go at, at something like importing. What do you think makes that entrepreneurial mindset successful in your case? Well, the way I look at it too is I'm definitely not the most educated. I'm not the smartest person on earth. But one thing I always, always knew I had was, was time and drive. So if I poured enough time into something and I pour enough drive and enough effort, obviously not every Every idea you throw out a window is going to stick, but if you keep filtering through them, one will, and that's what it's been. And like my father said to me one day when we were talking, he said, you can never never be afraid to be a person that can stand up and say he's had a go. He said, you might not pull it off, but he said, if you can stand up and say you had a go, that's something. That's what it come back to because I knew if I just, if I just stuck to it and put enough time into it, me importing business, it took off. And now we sort of just specialise in solar pumps. So I've now got to deal with a manufacturer of solar pumps and I import and sell them. And during the 2019 drought, we were going gangbusters. Like I was selling I was selling eight solar pumps a week. And especially the fact where having an electrical background, I had a very in-depth understanding of what I wanted out of them and everything. So I could represent quality, but to the same point where, I, I understand this is business, but I'd never want anyone to think that I was simply capitalizing on on a drought by selling a product people need in the drought because that money I was making selling products to people in drought, I was then pouring into feed and into solar pumps for our farm and everything like that. And it'd be nothing. I still remember it now. Was it Boxing Day? A gent rang me up saying he was running out of water in his dam. He thought he only had he had a week's worth of water left and he needed a solar pump and my lead time on solar pumps was three weeks and he the old mate was just pouring his heart out on the phone on Boxing Day and then and that was it. That was the rest of me Boxing Day. I was on the phone, on the computer, sending emails off everything because I knew I had to get this to him because I knew, I knew the pain he was feeling. I believe always feeling willing to just put more time in. Oh, that's pretty well me, me secret. More time, more effort, and just keep going hard. And it feels like you got a growth mindset as well, Morgan. I'm just thinking about your, your farm example where you put that offer in. We get farmers come to us all the time and saying, hey, I've got this great opportunity, and they put everything, which is great, into that opportunity thinking it's the be-all and end-all. But I think your mindset is the mindset that a lot of people need to have in this search for farm ownership or making their business happen. It's you know, think about it as one of many opportunities that you need to chase and knowing that some will fall through and you've got to let some through. That growth mindset feels like it's key to, to you just keep going and uncovering the opportunity after opportunity and not being stuck in potentially a bad a bad deal. Yeah, yeah, um, 100%. I would agree with that because obviously the wider the net you can cast and the wider the um, revenue streams you tap into, the better you'll be because it'd be unlucky for there to be drought in all of them. I had also, like the same as I, I run breeders on my 600 acres and then that new block I was stocking, I was getting ready up until oh, four months ago, I was stocking it, going to run like background cattle, so grow out steers to bullocks on it. Market spiked here for wieners off the cow. The meatworks prices didn't overly change and I sat down and 
did a few numbers in my head sort of and the hour drive from work to the farm always helps that when you can just do numbers in your head and I said well I'm going to go I'm going to run all breeders on this and I did all the numbers and I told me old boy I said well most of them paddock I said I'm going to I'm going to I think the term I use I'm going to spin the coop on them he said what do you mean I said I can get out of them now and still make money and get breeders on there I said now with the market it's the time to do it and he said you're mad what happens if it doesn't work? I said, oh, well, it'll just have to be. I said, I'll call it a big boy move. I said, I've done the numbers. I think it'll be right. I said, we'll, we'll just call it a big boy move. And it did. It, it, it did come off. Well, if you looked at it, there were steers there that I would have been keeping another 12 to 18 months longer to make $100 a head more out of them. And when you start looking at that cost-wise, obviously it's not profitable and it's not a wise decision to do at that point. So I'm always – Always looking and always thinking. You touched briefly, Morgan, on working off farm and having a, an alternate income stream. You still do that, obviously. You, you just said then a, an hour's drive into work. Yeah, I still work. I work full time as an ENI technician for one of the big industries in town, and then I've also got. I've just launched October last year my own electrical contracting business as well so doing electrical and air cons and automation as well i do working for myself so i I still do a lot of that in the hometown as well so that's where that's just literally another another revenue stream that's come in you can never have too many it's definitely that still working full-time off farm and this job as well now is key to the success why i've been able to secure this second farm as well because obviously it takes a lot of money to to do these things and you got to get that money from somewhere and you definitely got to work for that money i think that's that's sort of obviously been the key to success because you got to make money somehow because you buy a farm and it's going to be a lot of years before it if it ever turns a profit but it's going to be a lot of years of putting money back into it before it starts to work off the principal on that mortgage you've got on it i think you're spot on i don't know how you find time to actually fit it all in you must have some secrets around time management do you if, yeah, if my wife was here, she'd just shake her head. I'm my own worst enemy for it to the point where I could work all day on the farm and then I'll go in and do a night shift and then I'll go home and work the next day or I'll be carting cattle, taking a load of cattle and someone rings up and says, oh, I want another one. And I said, another load? And I'll be like, yeah, no worries, and load them at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and unload them at 9 o'clock at night and then getting home at 11 o'clock getting ready to go to bed and get up at four o'clock to go to go to work or i'm definitely not afraid to put in the hours same as as i think the funniest story we ever had is when we were at tafe college during my apprenticeship the old boy was busy on another job and we had to get a load of cold cows to the meatwork so i think i got up at got up at 20 past three and threw them on the truck under land cruiser headlights and launched it and took them up to rocky and unloaded them and then drove drove back and here the cattle truck was taking up eight car parks in the TAFE car park and then went in and did me did me days worth of study and then jumped back in it and drove home. <laughs> if I touch back what in what you said in your podcast and what I, I related to very much, but I I might have been a bit harsher and you might have danced around their feelings a bit more, is you said people going to buy a farm and saying, oh, they didn't have enough money or they didn't have enough deposit or they didn't they couldn't get it over the line and you said in that podcast well maybe you need to realize you haven't committed enough to it 
and take a bigger look at that. And I definitely can relate to that as well because a lot of people obviously outside looking in think it's easy. And I'll say to everyone, I said, well, it's a lifestyle. Anyone can do it. I said, but you truly got to commit and it's it's all at what cost is the other thing I like to say, at what cost where you might be at home after work kicking your feet up, having a beer, thinking about how you're going to go out and get on the turps all night with your mates and over the weekend and then sleep all the next day because you're hungover and maybe order a takeout pizza where I'm out and I've already got bloody 24 hours on the clock working. I definitely say that anyone anyone can do it and anyone can achieve if, if they want to get into agriculture or if they want to buy a house or they want a flash car, anyone can do anything but you, you just got to gotta commit to it and you've got to have that drive and you've got to have that grit and stick to it. Outside looking in and seeing what someone else has done, you also got to appreciate that that hasn't been handed to them. It wasn't just given to them and, or somehow they got it easier than you did because just give them the respect they deserve for the work they've put in. I look at people, obviously, the same as our neighbours, the young couple there that have have built their own empire. I look at them and I've got absolute admiration for them because they're, they're doing the same thing and obviously they've made the same sacrifices and done the same grit and you can appreciate that, especially when you've had such an involvement with it as well. Morgan, I'm really interested to hear what you say when people ask what you do. I, I talk to a lot of farmers who want to own their farm and there's this pride tied up with saying you're a farmer and the idea that you would get income off your farm, it just is not the ideal dream. But I, I'm assuming when people, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, when, when people ask you what you do, you might have an answer that's more entrepreneurial than saying you're a farmer. And I think that sort of mindset uh, that you your goal is to own your farm and run a profitable farm but doesn't mean that's how you have to be a farmer and only doing farming to make it work. I think that mindset I think you've got is so powerful and a freeing, freeing mindset so that you can look at ways of diversifying your income to keep that farm going and you know, maybe one day you're there full-time but maybe not there from the start. I'd love to, you to unpack that. That's definitely 100% because whenever I'm having a conversation with some people that I might meet them just randomly or whatever because you never know anyone's story if they say, oh, I'm off a property or I do this and rah-rah, and they say, oh, what do you do? I, I normally reply in jest sort of just to set the mood. I just say, oh, I'm just a speargrass bullock fattener. I'm not sure if he's aware of speargrass, but it, the best thing it is good for is getting stuck in your socks. <laughs> so, so I'm more calling myself a hobby horse jockey. And uh, I say that in jest just for the fact that, for exactly what you said, I, I want to cut through that barrier of, it's not so much pride because obviously I'm very proud and I'm very passionate about what I do. But I think sometimes when you push that across the line, there can also be a sense of if you narrow in your options and just limit yourself to that one thing, what else are you limiting yourself by? It's such a, a great story with where you have got to at this point in time. I'm interested in what the future might hold for the farm, but also for your own small business. Well, yeah, so the small business where we started in October, we've been booked out like five weeks in advance is a standard waiting period. What I tell people they'll have to wait for when I've got a job, but obviously things always, like if an elderly lady rings up and said she's got no hot water, obviously that's a priority. I'll be there with a candle out if I've got to be to get that going because that's what comes with the territory when people rely on you. And I'm going to still keep working full time because a dependable income or reliable income in agriculture is something you can't really put a price on no matter what it is because 
money that hits your account the same time every month is something you, you don't get in agriculture. And I need to keep working on stocking the new farm that I purchased. And also at the moment we're in the nearly in the finishing stages is my wife and I were building a house on that first block that I purchased. I've got a few days in there where I've been wiring it up the last couple of days and hopefully we get that finished and we get moved into that and gradually the end goal is what I want is I want to get onto a shift job where you work sort of five days on, five days off so you free up a bit of time and then obviously as the farm becomes not so much profitable but more of the turnover you get to keep I, I also want to go what they call split shift, which whereas where you yourself and another person then halve the one job. So instead of working five days on, five days off, you'll do that five days on, five days off for a month, and then you take the next month off because they come in and do that. They'll free up a fair bit of time, so then I can focus more and do more in agriculture and me farming and stuff like that. Because I got dreams where I still want I want to buy a semi. Just because some people might want a jet ski and some people might want a dirt bike, but I want a semi and I want to cart cattle around in it. So work work towards that. Also, as I suppose when you look at it, I, I got to try and I got to free up more time, and I keep on saying, and I also got to keep working to make sure I put it into action because get get down and help my grandfather down there Toowoomba more and more because obviously he's getting older and he needs more and more help. Got to make sure I keep that a priority on the horizon. And to making sure I've got enough time to get down there and help him and then obviously still time to help on the original family farm. I guess looking at it, I've sort of put a hold on any further expansion, like buying any more country. I've, I've sort of done the numbers and I'm, I'm happy with what I've got and I want to sort of contain my debt levels and then focus back more on, on the family and the reason why I got into it really. No doubt that you'll get that, Sammy Morgan. I think it's been fantastic speaking to you today from collecting cans to importing equipment to owning your own farm to then also starting your own business uh, it's such a, a remarkable story in itself and you're, you're a really natural communicator obviously it's been such a great chat but before we wrap up we do have one question that we ask all of our guests and that's what brand of work boots do you wear <laughs> yeah well i wear zip up bloodstones for when i'm working because they're good and then when we're riding horses or whatever i've got I've got two sets of them and they're Ariat Ropers and I got them because I think I got two sets of them. They were $90 a set from Factory Seconds. So that's why I got them because they were cheap and I didn't care if I got them caught up on a fence or anything. You've scoped out a good deal. Thank you very much for joining (laughs) us today, Morgan. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me. I, I was glad we could catch up for a chat. And also thanks to Sam for joining us as well. My pleasure. Always inspiring to meet People like Morgan, they're you know, the future of Australian farming and it's, uh, I hope everybody's inspired to, to see you can make your dreams possible but it doesn't go without hard work. I definitely appreciate what both of you gentlemen are doing too because obviously listening to this podcast and then especially yours, Sam, that episode that you featured in is, is the reason why I reached out and also said that I wanted to come on and share my story because it was great to see that there's someone out there that's trying to encourage people and if there's any people out there that might have that doubt in their mind or had doubt put in their mind by other people, at least you're the friendly voice to say, well, get out and have a crack, son, and see what happens. No, you couldn't, couldn't have put it better myself, Morgan. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. 
Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert. And I'm Matt Hour, and we'll chat to you next time.